Greetings, Amigops, and Top Teners everywhere. This is Mike from Top Ten with Kyle and Mike. I am joined this week, as I am every week, by our delightful Patagonian, glassesed, headphoned, bearded, handsome co-host Kyle. Kyle and I just spoke with each other two minutes ago, and we're pretending that this is next week, but it is not, listeners. It's two minutes after we recorded the last podcast. We are going to be discussing a topic, as we always do. I think you might get a little hint as to what this topic is. Kyle will be providing the list. I'm going to pretend I don't know, but I know. We are going to discuss this list in depth. We will not really be re-ranking it because it is a Kyle list. But at the end of this episode, hopefully brief, we will have for you the definitive Kyle list of the thing that we will be discussing shortly. So, Kyle, what are we talking about? Thank you, Mike, for that fantastic introduction. It is the hotly anticipated, and by hotly anticipated, I mean only by me, and maybe you, I guess. And me. Yeah, me too. It's the sequel slash brother podcast of the Mike Booker Prize. It's the Kyle Booker Prize. I have not decided to make an alternate punny kind of prize. I'm just putting my name where yours was on the Mike Booker Prize. I had a good one, but it uses your last name. Yeah. So we're going to skip that. I'm so excited about this. I am I'm retroactively disappointed we haven't done this in the past, but now really excited that this is on my list for the future. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't have worked in the past because I don't think I've ever read 10 nonfiction books in the same year until all of a sudden I found myself with a lot of reading time. And then yeah, now going forward, I know I have to make the list, so I'll get her done. But. Yeah. That's a good that's a good motivation. And you killed it this year on the nonfiction. You are an excellent nonfiction recommender. Your taste in nonfiction is impeccable. I'm I'm excited. It turns out I love nonfiction. Like I think more than I like fiction. Because you're a learner. You're such a learner. Like you're you're the classic never stop learning person, and nonfiction's a good vehicle for that. I learned so much this year, and I cannot wait to share it with you, dear listeners, and you, Michael. So we'll just get right. The only rules are I had to read it this year, and it has to be nonfiction. Like I don't have a shelf restriction as you do. There's no like series limitations. So it's just, just all the books I read this year that were nonfiction. Oh, there is Love one. It. I didn't, there was, there were a couple of authors or maybe just one where I read multiple of their works. So I limited it to one on the actual list for the sake of okay. fairness. That's it. I can dig that. All right. And no, no publication issues, right? Like it could have been written in 1902 or 2010. Yeah. All good. All right. Let's do this thing. Number 10 is a book called Upstream by Dan Heath. Oh, you mentioned this one. I love your pitch. I, when I first read it, I I kind of, sh- I shrugged, I guess. And I figured, you know, this is an honorable mention. And the longer it's been since I've read it, the more I've like thought about it all the time. And it's just stuck with me. And I found myself thinking about it and applying it to all kinds of other things. Like it's, it's a book that like, no matter what you're thinking about has implications. So the the, the concept is that the, the now it's such a perfect analogy because you'll never forget it. Me and you are hanging out in a river or nearby a river. We're just chilling. I don't know what we're doing. Maybe we're both reading. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And this fucking kid starts like it's like coming down the river, but the kid can't swim. And we're like, oh, shit. So we jump in the river. Right. And we say between the two of us, we save the kid. And like just barely have we got this kid on shore. When we turn around and we hear more splashing and there's two more fucking kids coming down the river and we're like, all right, here we go. So we go and, you know, we save those kids too. We managed to save them. 
And as we're putting them on the shore next to the first kid that's recovering, we turn around and there's two more kids coming down the river. We're like, God damn it. So you fucking take off. And I'm like, we're asshole. <laughs> like, where are you going? I got to save these fucking kids. And you're like, no, I'm going upstream and I'm going to stop the dick who's throwing kids in the river. So that's the that's the general premise. It's like most of our problems were so busy dealing with the symptoms of them that we're, we're too busy to think about where the problems originate and where they come from. And so it's more it's it's really just like a bunch of kind of like case studies and anecdotal kind of evidence to suggest that like we need to start thinking in a more upstream fashion and it's presented mostly as kind of like a systematic from a systematic lens so like here's how you improve your schools or here's how you improve your workflow at work here's how you improve your healthcare system it it it, it translates a lot to like not politics, but political issues, but it can also kind of be applied to like your everyday life. And I just have been using this book as a lens to kind of think about all kinds of things like healthcare, all the stuff that's been in the news this year. I, I, I find myself thinking, okay, here's the issue. Here's what we're talking about. What's the upstream problem? And how are we thinking about the solution in terms of upstream? So that's the that's the pitch of it. Well, you brought a bunch of things to mind there. One is, you're so right. I think one of the cool things about these year-end lists is that you, you find out what lived with you and what stuck. Because I found when I was putting my list together, it was not about the ratings. I didn't even look at them. It was just like, oh, that one really stuck with me, that one. So that's cool. Another thing I, I think you had mentioned to me is you're skeptical, and I am too, of books that kind of are pitched sometimes unfairly as like self-help or sort of businessy books. And I feel like that was part of your hesitation with this one, but it's cool when they can sort of scale that wall and be something more. But I, the last thing is I, it's funny you say that. Cause I was actually thinking about an upstream downstream type problem today. And I was on, I, and I don't, I'm not going to get super specific because it's a little bit sensitive, but uh, I was on a work, a work call and I was with a group of people who are who are senior and I noticed that they're all white men. And I was thinking about how it's interesting because if you are addressing the ups the down the downstream problem, you know, you look at that and for me it's like every one of the people who is in this position earned their position. And I think it would be at this point unfair to not give those positions to those people in favor of giving them to somebody else purely for for diversity reasons. Not everybody agrees with that, but that that's my opinion. I look at that and I'd say, you know, XYZ person, I don't see how I could take that person out and replace them with somebody else and look the employees in the eye. But the problem is not the downstream problem. The problem is the upstream problem. The fix is not to me, again, and this is something that not everybody would agree on. This is my opinion on this topic. The fix there is not replace person who is the symptom of this problem. It's fix the problem by upstream injecting more talent earlier in this pool. Yeah. So that when the time comes to pick the leaders of your organization, you know, be it whatever, an athletic organization, a fraternal organization, a, a work group, whatever – you have this pool built up, you know, that's, that's the case. And that's why, you know, when you look at industry and, and academia or whatever, because women have now been in that ecosystem for long enough, 
we're starting to see, oh, this is what happens when you actually flood this system upstream with really talented people. They come out the other end just as well as everybody else. It's just about upstreaming that problem. Well, yeah. And and like most of this book is that like, it's really more about identifying that problem in the first place. Like most of the time, if you can identify where the upstream problem is solving, it's actually not the hard part. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stories to that point, but in this case, it's <laughs> even though you've identified the problem, it's still mind bogglingly difficult to tackle, but like you get the idea. And I will say, um, the reason I knew of this book was because Dax did a really, really good interview with Dan Heath on armchair expert. And it's not a replacement for reading the book, but I will say that he really gets across some of the key points and goes through some of the more interesting kind of uh, case studies. And so if you don't have the time to, it's pretty, it's a really short book, but if you just want to get like an hour in and out um, and get a lot of the key points, it's a really good interview on Armchair Expert. And the last thing I will say is that all nonfiction books or the vast majority of them are required to have a colon and then an explanatory explanatory yes. note. And so forgot to mention that this book is not just called Upstream. It's Upstream colon the quest to solve problems before they happen. So you are so right. Good call on the colon. Yeah. Nine of the 10 on my top 10 list have <laughs> colon titles. So I'll make sure I tell you all of them. Uh, all right. So that was number 10. That's Upstream by Dan Heath. Number nine is a book called The Death and Life of Ada Hernandez. I didn't heard about this one. Yeah, the only reason I found it was because I literally just Googled, like, books about the border and, like, like the modern, like, border conflict. Because I feel like there's been a lot of discussion. Like, that topic, like, this cycle, like, weirdly has not been a big issue of discussion. But, like, in 2016 and 2012, it was, like, the item of discussion. And in 2012 and 2016, I didn't have the information or the intelligence to like think about those issues critically. And I realized that I still don't. And so I tried to rectify that by reading something. So I literally just like, I think I just went on Goodreads and typed in like border stuff. I love, I've done that before. And it's always funny what you get. I love, I love the strategy. It's you're looking for something. Just ask for it. It worked out. It's interesting. So it's, it's so this one is the colon is um colon <laughs> a border story. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that's what i like about it so much is that's all it is so like this and this is uh an author by the name of aaron Barbara strain um and so basically he, t he tells you up front like this is not like an argument one way or the other about like how you should feel about the border or what your politics on the border should be or even what mine are this is just a story about someone who and it's not intended to, he goes out of his way to say this is not a this is not supposed to be like a typical story like you're not supposed to believe that everyone's experience is just like this the point is to tell you one story and to kind of humanize it and make you understand what some of the things are that you should be thinking about it kind of gives you like all of the underlying pieces and then like lets you kind of interpret them how you want which is kind of what i was looking for so as this the title implies it follows the life of this uh this woman ada hernandez who was born in Mexico, but moves to the States with her mother uh, and her boyfriend, like when she's really young. And so she grows up in the American school system, but is not an American citizen. And it's, it, and it just goes from there and it follows her throughout her life. So it's, 
it's really interesting because like it it brought into my mind at least a lot of the subtleties on both sides of whichever side of this argument quote you want to be on and it makes kind of compelling points for both because her life really kind of like touches a lot like it's i think this is true of a lot of people that live on the border um like it falls into both camps and it's just i feel like i just now have a much more rounded picture of like what the personal kind of uh, implications of that that issue are because where we live or at least where i live where i grew up in michigan and now living in chicago it's not really a hot topic and it's not something that i interact with on a personal basis and so this story made it very personal i like that and i like what you're getting at about having a kind of a different style of nonfiction story that's meant to serve a slightly different purpose than like an argumentative nonfiction story. Uh, Cause I do think the decision of how to approach nonfiction is really interesting because all fiction basically approaches things in a similar way. Now you can, we've talked about this recently. You can kind of explicitly make a, something about a topic or not, but it's all fictional. And so they kind of share that nonfiction. You can really kind of do with it, whatever you want. And some nonfiction is very like written as though it's a term paper and some takes this approach and some take other approaches. So I think that's really cool. I like this edition because it feels I'm guessing will feel like a little bit of an outlier in a good way with the list. It feels like you're reading a documentary because he, yeah. like, he wrote it and like he wrote it in working with this woman and her family and like, you know, the people she interacted with. So it's very like, it's very journalistic, but also pretty like very narrative. So it's, I, I would recommend it, especially if you're like me and you feel like you're lacking kind of like any context whatsoever on like a pretty important modern issue in our country. Yeah. Love it. Number eight. The only reason it's this low is because it's so kind of fragmented because this is one of the, my favorite things I read all year. It's, called a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again colon <laughs> essays and arguments so uh if you've already i think we'll publish yours first you heard me on the mike booker prize podcast extol the virtues of david foster wallace and to a lesser extent infinite jest <laughs> a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again is a much more digestible version of david foster wallace because it's seven arguments and essays that they're most for the most part pretty short some of them are a little bit longer some of them you could this is i would recommend you could read this in pieces i don't think you have to read the whole thing to really get a lot out of it the three i would the probably the best way to read it if you're going to do that is there are three pieces that kind of work off of each other and they're kind of the same structure he is at this style that is like i would call like experiential where he just like immerses himself in something and describes it and drives meaning from it and kind of like puts his own kind of takes on it. But it's so funny. And I, I think he's been criticized because I think some of the stuff he writes about, he embellishes a little bit for humorous effect. But like, if, if you have that understanding going into it, you'll be able to take it for what it, what it is. And the three pieces are, there's one where his newspaper sent him to go to the Illinois state fair and just hang out there for a week. And it's called getting away from already pretty much being away from it all. <laughs> And it's hilarious. It's just like a scathing kind of, not scathing, but like, it's what you'd expect from like a snooty East Coast writer hanging out at the Illinois State Fair for a week. Yep. He does another one called, oh, I, I didn't write it down. It's, he spends a weekend at the Canadian Open. He's a former, uh, like, amateur tennis player. And then 
the the title essay is called a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again which is him on a all expense paid luxury caribbean cruise (laughs) and like it's this pasty east coast writer on a cruise ship kind of like what's so cool about the way he writes and he like he's very self-aware and it's it's kind of a lot but like his writing style he dubs it's called like new sincerity so he's making fun of all these things like very openly like he's ridiculing people and himself but he does it like with the understanding also that like these it's weird like it's very kind of like affectionate kind of ridicule and it's not mean it's like it's like a really really hard line to walk where he's like making fun of people without it being like mean-spirited i think and that's why it's it's fun to read and why it's funny and those three pieces in particular if you read them in sequence are just like really really fun so I I really recommend that one. You don't have to read the whole thing in this case. I uh, it's funny when you say like ridiculing without being mean to. It sort of reminds me a little bit of how early Parks and Rec and late The Office like they romanticize the work of people who are doing unimportant work while making fun of it, and it kind of works, and it's really cool. The other thing is I like what you mentioned, and I I haven't read this collection. You mentioned it to me recently, and so these are ringing a bell to me. But I like the idea of perspective in nonfiction because it's – I mentioned it a little bit with the Ada Hernandez thing where, like, there's different approaches. But one one thing that's cool about nonfiction is there's this very journalistic notion of, like, editorial distance and being very detached from what you write – and then there was like gonzo journalism of Hunter S. Thompson and, and people who like intentionally broke with that tradition. And I think at this point there's a cool interaction. It's a little bit like when, you know, TV shows and movies break the, the third, the fourth wall. Like it's cool now when it's somebody does it right in a cool way. It's not cool just to do it anymore because it's been done. But like, yeah. if you can figure out the right way to do it, it's really, really impressive. Like uh Fleabag is a great example of yeah, a yes. TV show that like breaks the fourth wall in a way that's not just revolutionary. Cause it's new. It's like revolutionary. Cause it's so well done. And I feel like that's sort of what you're describing. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting because like, with a lot of these books, you kind of get a glimpse into the author's personality, but like for the most part, they try to stay detached because they're not writing yeah. about themselves, but he's like very much in the middle of everything he's writing, which gives you kind of like a weird, not a weird, but like a, a kind of like a relationship with him and it feels very personal. And I, I just love, I love his writing style and I'm in the process of just reading everything I can that he's written. If you don't want to read these, you could spend a half hour reading. It's kind of, it's kind of a famous uh commencement speech he gave called this is water or what is water and like it's fair to say that that like literally changed my life when i read it in college so at the very least read that if you want to if you want more after that read this i really liked reading it wonderful i love it all right well that brings us to a very important part of the list kyle could you uh help us remember what that part is i need some help from kev Thank you, Kevin. Stankalicious. Uh, that music's favorite album is the classic Stankonia by Outkast. Thank you. All right, what's on your not tops, if anything? 
Yeah, these are all like not tops, but like not really. So um, I, I like that about you and about myself. I like yeah. that about both of us. The it's one thing like there are not enough movies for all of them to be good. Right. But there are enough books for them all to be good. And so I like that we admit that to ourselves. Like I read books and they don't like almost none of them suck because there's a trillion books in the universe. Like why? I'm not going to pretend I don't like books that I read just because it's cooler to not like them. You know, I'm I'm with you. I think it's possible to find one. I just didn't happen to get any this year. Yeah. Jaffiel. One, we talked about this on your pod, so we can we can glance over it. The Splendid and the Vile, but only because we're so used to like groundbreaking, yeah. incredibly narrated uh, fiction or nonfiction from him. Yeah, grading on the curve a little bit. Yeah, number two is um, a weird one called "Take Your Eye Off the Ball: uh, Colon How to Watch Football by Knowing Where to Look." So. Uh, that's actually good advice. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually, it's funny, I've been trying to do that this year. I was getting tired of, like, not understanding what was happening in football and only understanding it at, like, kind of a surface level. And uh, so Pat Kerwin wrote this, who I didn't really know he was, who he was when I picked it up. And now I, like, he was, I think he was on, Fo- like, the Fox NFL program for a long time. I'm pretty sure he's one of uh, the vassal lords of Winterfell. <laughs> yeah. He does look like that. No, uh, but that's the Kerwin, Lord Kerwin. Yeah, that. Yeah, that too. So the I like the first half of the book is like an A plus because it's like he's really explaining football and like I learned a lot from the first like three chapters. Like I think like just reading the first chapter and understanding the packages of like like I like I was like so I didn't know any like I literally didn't even know that like there's a limit to like the number of skill position players you can have and where they can play on the line. And just understanding that and understanding how teams will rotate out those five players, like really, really, really takes like my experience of watching football to the next level. And it's something that simple. And so the only problem, my only problems with the book were that he like kind of skips over some basic football terminology that I had to look up on my own that was frustrating. And then the second half of the book is like just kind of his opinion on like where football is going and like how the draft should work. And it's like not really informative. It's more just like Pat Kerwin's take on football, which I'm less interested in. It's funny. This this is good timing because I just got I just loaned my dad a book on investing because he's getting into investing. And the thing I was thinking about as I gave him that book is just you cannot possibly overstate how important it is to just grasp fundamentals before you move on to anything. Like, yes. Think about football. Like, you know, I, I was thinking about that watching this. I think it's the Monday night broadcast with Lewis Riddick on it. I think Lewis Riddick is a truly fantastic football mind, but he's a like 401 or 501 football mind. And when you're <laughs> watching that and he's not telling you like, uh, RP, he says RPO. RPO is a good example. Say RPO, 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 RPO. Exactly. Like, it's a run pass option, but it's not exactly what it sounds like. It is, but it's more complicated than that. And there's like years of football background that goes into understanding that. And until you unlock that, that's not an entertaining product. Like, that stinks to watch and to like be made to feel like a dope when you're not a dope. You're just not being told what you need to know. Yeah. So if you read this book, you'll be able to start listening to football and watching it on TV and understand what they're talking about. So it accomplishes its goal. It's just 
there's a lot of fluff and it requires some work. Gotcha. Last one is a book called White Rage, colon, mm. The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson. That's so funny. I heard I read some really bad reviews of this book. I had heard like universally great things from white people who read it, but then like read some backlash against it that I found interesting. So I'm curious. I And I have not read it, to be clear, but I like read a lot of the meta text about it. My only problem with it is that it's, well, there's, it's twofold. One is Carol Anderson wrote a piece titled White Rage for, I think it was Washington Post like two years ago. And it's, and I read it after reading this and it's just the same thing. So like the, the basic premise of the book is every time that black people in America, and I'm sure this is true elsewhere, kind of like find themselves advancing there's this like crazy white backlash to it. And so she like outlines that specifically in five different periods, like starting with like the end of slavery and then the great migration and um, reconstruction up through like, like civil rights movement. And then in like modern day, like um, uh, like voter disenfranchisement. And like, she like adds on a sixth section in this book, like kind of the Trump era. And so like, it's not that it, it, like the book is just like a, a fleshed out version of that article, which I was kind of frustrated by because I was expecting a little bit more. And the other thing is that it's not, I think because I've read so much on this topic this year, this book just struck me as the one that I was least interested in because there's not, it's not, there's really not much of a point to it other than kind of like, this, this sounds bad. It, like, it's kind of just rehashing what you should probably already know and kind of like laying it out in a framework that's a little more organized, but it's not like making a point per se. It's more of just kind of like renumerating and like, there's obviously like a lot of value in that. And I'm not trying to, 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 to downplay that at all, especially because like in the more, like the later periods of the book, it's stuff that was mostly not new to me, but something I had never studied in detail because most of our history courses never make it to the 1960s. And so there's a lot of value there. It's just, and the only reason it's on the not top three is because relatively speaking, compared to a lot of the other stuff I read this year, I think you could probably pass on this one. I mean, it matters. That's, and yeah. also I think, as I'm thinking about this, I think the book I was thinking of, the backlash against was White Fragility, not White Rage. But mm. I am also aware of this book's existence. I do think... It's funny your comment about like the, the in the context of the books you read this year. All this stuff matters so much. It's so funny how much like mood, how you read it, when you read it, what books you read around the time you read it. Like those things have such a monumental impact on your your like lingering feelings about a book. Absolutely. And I think if I had read this like a different year and it had been the only book I read on this subject, this is probably like number two on my list, but yeah. because I, this was like the fifth book I read in one year about the same top like subject matter. Um, that, 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 that's definitely a part of it. So yeah. Jaffiel. All right. All right, Doug, you ready to get back to the list? Number seven on the same topic as very, very, very popular book this year, how to be an anti-racist. This is the only book on my list that doesn't have a colon in the title. Oh, nice. I feel like, I, you know, the thing is that title it kind of it kind of hits you. I, it tells you what's what. 
what I like about this book is that it's exactly what it says it is. Like, it's it's almost literally like reading a manual where, like, kind of step by step, like, in what's it's just it's kind of a frustrating read because it's have you read this one yet? No, it's just like the first half of the book is just like definitions. Like he kind of has like an alternate version of most of the terms you've already heard Mm -hmm. that he's like, I think, in the process of popularizing. And so like every chapter starts with like definitions and like defining them. And it's kind of like reading a proof, which is kind of boring. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize why he's doing it, because then he can kind of use all of his own words that he's defined on his own to like make his argument a little bit more cohesive. And I think I learned a lot by seeing all of this stuff through his lens and in his own words. And most importantly, like kind of made important distinctions in my mind between terms that I previously thought didn't have distinctions in them or were kind of binary and I'm realizing now aren't. So it's, it's almost like reading like a definition. uh, It's like, it's like reading a dictionary of words that you like should know how to use when discussing these issues basically well i'm very into that because it is funny how many times particularly in uh sort of emotionally sensitive topics like race where people and you and i were having a discussion earlier where definition of terms is just so important like especially when people get worked up about something yeah agreeing that we're talking like we're speaking the same language is really important and so i you know i think that's that's cool that it's like all right let's all get on the same page here with exactly what i'm saying now let's talk about it that's exactly what it is it's really really cool and he has some great great opinions that i think he articulates well and kind of like not changed the way i thought about these issues but kind of like reframed them and gave me and it was very clear like i felt like i really understood what he was trying to say that's such a great feeling yeah so i i recommend that one just realize that it's like a little it's not even dense it's just like procedural and so it's like kind of it it drags a little bit i would say at times like in the middle but that's the only critique i'd have of it Mm -hmm. number six is a really cool one uh i read around the middle of the year called invisible women uh colon Data bias in a world designed for men. So, and the the author is a woman named uh, Caroline Criado Perez. So, what I think I love so much about this book is that it's not so much. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's not just like kind of remunerating all of the like myriad of ways that we know that women are kind of discriminated against in our society. It's like it's well it is those things like every chapter is like a different issue like whether it be healthcare or the workplace or maternity leave or transportation or uh like whatever it is like she outlines the issue and then she explains why our bias in those fields are swayed by the data that we have like at our fingertips like what we have available to us like she's not letting us off the hook by any means But she's pointing out that, like, we're kind of operating as a society with our hands, one hand tied behind our back because we're not asking the right questions and we're not getting the right data to understand with numbers why these, like, prejudices happen. And so, like, there's just so many interesting examples, like, specifically. I feel like you mentioned the ones you've mentioned this to me, and this came up recently because I think Caroline read it, too, and she was telling somebody 
And I was recounting, I think, two that you mentioned. One, I think, was seatbelts, and the other one was um, the step counting, which I thought were both really cool. Yeah, a really, like, easy one to, like, visualize is just, like, phones. Like, women don't carry their phones on them the way that men do because they don't have pockets. (laughs) And so, like, (laughs) one of the health recommendations and health apps that we use on our phone don't work as well for women because they're not tracking their movements as effectively as they do for men. And that's just like a really small example, but like that kind of thinking underlies a lot of the data, like the data bias that we apply to all kinds of other topics. The one that really struck me is, well, yeah, crash test dummies is a huge one, but another big one is just that like where they don't have boobs, right? That was the, yeah. that's like the takeaway is like crash test dummies don't have boobs. And well, so how a seatbelt is set up doesn't like support you correctly. Is that the deal? That's part of it. And shockingly, mm-hmm. Many crash test dummies that are set up to like have a female anatomy are only tested in the passenger's seat. Like it's, <laughs> it's just gross. That's yeah. just gross. It's super fucked up, and like it's it, it doesn't make any sense. But like there's all these huge gaps in how we're and how we're doing yeah. these things. And like the most shocking one for me was in the medical industry and how a lot of these pharmaceutical companies are not actually required to do the same kind of amount of testing. Like it's. Like, most testing that is required is not gender-specified, and so, like, you can test a drug on a thousand men and say this thing works, and it's fine, like, you can get approval for that without testing it on women, and the reason a lot of pharmaceuticals skip that step is because women are so much more complicated with the menstrual cycle, and, like, it's just really expensive to test women as effectively as you do for men, and so they just skip it, and, like, that's okay with the way our system is set up question is it is something that they mentioned because as we're talking about it i feel like it must be uh nutrition facts like i would think that the 2000 calorie diet is probably a male centric thing and so if i'm a woman i have to do some adjusting for that nutrition like pretty much any kind of standard that you're that you're taught to kind of operate off of is is based exclusively on the male like metabolism or the male body or like whatever and so like being aware of the that, penis right <laughs> so like being aware of that is a really big step in like or like, like like in transportation like you know like the way we design our transportation systems are off like transit specifically is oftentimes based on people that go to work and like historically that's typically been men and so like our transit systems are like set up to prejudice themselves against women and it's just like pretty much any field you can think of there's a data bias there and so that's probably enough to to say about this book but i thought it was really really interesting and it's dense but what i really like is that this author um is definitely british and like brings it up a couple of times and she's got like a very distinctive like british kind of lean on the way she relays all this stuff and it's very sassy that's a nice little uh a little cherry on top very fun to read i highly recommend that one if you are trying to be um what's the what's that word for like when you like don't silo and you're not just thinking about black people and then women you're thinking about like black and intersectional yes if you're trying to be intersectional this is a great um book to have in your cap yeah i dig it all right number five number fumf. number five we're getting into the really really good stuff so i can't believe this fell to number five so you got me this book either for Christmas or for my birthday. It's called Midnight in Chernobyl. Oh, I still have to read this. I can't remember being like more riveted to a piece of nonfiction ever. It's it's like 
incre- it's incredibly harrowing to read and like you can't put it down and it's cool because the first half is like maybe the first like third is like the description of the actual Chernobyl disaster which is fascinating obviously but the remaining two thirds of the book are like the people like how the people in the area like reacted on the day of like basically the emergency response both in the, the immediate area and like across Europe and then like the response like in the years like the decades afterwards to remediate all of the like nuclear contamination that had been done and it is fascinating it was incredible to read i loved it i so i have to read this one something that i have recently become aware of as a result of the television show and this book being out and just like other stuff i did not realize the extent to which at least now in sort of the modern framing the Chernobyl disaster accelerated the toppling of uh, the Soviet Union. Yes, because it's and that has become a really key part of that narrative. And I'm I'm really I I really have to read this book because it's I got it for you for a reason, which was that I thought it really struck me, and I thought you would like it too. But I really want to read more about it. I listened to a podcast recently called Accused. I had listened to the first two seasons. The second season was kind of met. But the first season is about this uh, young woman named Beth Andes, who's a college student. I think you're nodding like you know. I think I recommended it to you. At least I listened to it, yeah. Yeah, I loved it really good. It, did I tell you about the third season? I don't think so. So the third season, the second season's whatever, but the third season is about this guy uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but he's... Um, He's an employee at a nuclear or, or uranium processing plant in Ohio in the 1980s, and he dies, and uh, they find what they believe are his remains in a uh, a salt vat that is basically molten salt that they use to shape uranium uh, fuel rods, and it's it's certainly not as dramatic or as kind of like. Uh, cinematic as the Chernobyl disaster, but the podcast has a really interesting job of breaking down how this little town kind of in the Cincinnati area has, has been dealing with the impacts of, of like getting rid of nuclear waste for, you know, 40 years. And I can imagine that putting that on this scale with these sorts of, geopolitical implications would only make it better it's so cool and it like really and then like throw on top of that like the enigma of like trying to navigate like the soviet like like political system like because like most of these people that were in charge of chernobyl were also like vying against each other like climbing this this ladder of like of politics and like in status it's like it's really really interesting especially from an engineering perspective, but I think anyone would enjoy this book. So I loved it. This one actually is not just called Midnight in Chernobyl. It's called Midnight in <laughs> Chernobyl, colon, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. This is my favorite subplot of this. Yeah. Of this. this should be called the Kyle, 2020 Kyle Booker Prize, colon, colon. the one where Kyle talks about colons. <laughs> uh, we should do that. That's funny. Yeah. Well, let's keep put a pin in that. Yeah. So that's okay. uh, and that was Adam uh, Higginbotham. Ooh. <laughs> highly, highly, highly recommend this one. All right. Number four, 
uh, is called We Were Eight Years in Power, colon, An American Tragedy. So have you, I don't think you've read this one, right? No. I want to know, so I want you to obviously explain what this is, you know, all that stuff. But I am curious, I'd like you to focus on what the tragedy is. Because I'm curious, like, what the framing is. I have a I have a feeling I can guess, but I, I'm interested in that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll frame it up a little first. So this is an author we've talked about on this podcast because we're doing a book club on one of his books. The author is uh, Tana Hissy Coates. I think I'm saying it right, and he is like probably, I would say right now, like among like the most yeah. well he's wrote, the yeah like the black author the the black American author, and he wrote he wrote for. I'm I'm blanking. Was the it Atlantic? It maybe? was the Atlantic, I think. Mm-hmm. He was he a, wrote the case for reparations while uh, as a contributor to the Atlantic. So I'm thinking this too. So he was there for a long time, like a contributing staff writer. And this book is actually just a collection of his works from that period, one from each year of Obama's presidency. So from 2000 and uh, eight to Nine, 2016. Yeah. yeah. So whatever. Whatever, however you want to do it, yeah. And each of them is, like, focused kind of on a different kind of issue or not issue, but, like, a, it's, like, a different perspective or topic kind of within this, like, broader persp- general, like, issue, uh, t- genre of, like, you know, race in America. And so, I don't know, I, I think it's up for interpretation. Like, the tragedy for him, I think, the, the more you the more you read is how... <laughs> Like, they, I, I think my interpretation is that, like, there was initially this, like, really jubilant kind of feeling in that community of having a black president. And they, I think in his, his mind, and you'll, you'll see as you read through these, like, his relationship with that idea of a black president kind of evolves and, like, sours over time, not because of Obama's performance as president, but because of how what he thought it represented as like a, a, in his mind, like a huge like point of progress as like of our society in his mind. I don't think it ended up representing that to him and to like that community at large. And it's really interesting. Like the, the further you read, like the kind of more you get that sense. I'm glad that was your answer. And I'm glad that that is the answer because in asking that, I was curious whether it's like the, the eight years were squandered or didn't mean what we hoped, or is it that the eight years are over? And I feel like it, it feels really true to his perspective on things that what he perceives as the tragedy, at least in your eyes, is that the eight years meant something different or less than he hoped. That's my interpretation of it. I, I And I think you could probably take different something different from it, but... And, and part of that is capped by, so this book was republished, like a, a new edition was published more recently, and it has a ninth chapter called The First White President, which is probably my <laughs> one of my very favorites, because he makes the case that every president before this, their whiteness has not been what's defined them. And as a reactionary election to the Obama administration, like Trump is the first president that necessarily needed to be white i actually think i read that and i remember being really starred i i'm you so that was published on the atlantic right yeah yeah i think i read that when it came out and i remember being really disturbed and startled by the piece 
but it was really prescient. And I felt that at the time it wasn't like, it's one of those like, oh, now it makes sense. But I remember being really unsettled by that take. His his work is kind of unsettling. Like, it's difficult to yeah. read because he doesn't pull punches. And what what I think is so cool about this book is that he, well, he like, he gives you the context before each one. So, like, you'll read an essay and then he'll explain the next one and then you'll read it and then he'll explain the next one and kind of, like, the evolution of his thinking throughout this, you know, these eight years. And so, like, you get that connective tissue and, like, there, I don't. I can't think of another way that you could read a book that touches on so many different aspects of this like subculture of of discussion and have it make sense. Like it kind of needs to be like anthological or whatever. And so he like for me at least like I've read about a lot of these things in different places. But it, like if you want to read one book that kind of touches a lot of the different ways that people think about these things, this is a really good place to do it because it's a lot of different angles and like. There are a lot of different formats. Like, there's a couple, and they're like more of kind of like biographical, like stuff about Michelle Obama and Malcolm X, and then there are like pieces that are more just his opinions, like kind of kind of focused on Obama specifically. But also, this book um, does include the case for reparations, which is like a really really interesting read. So, this is a very broad kind of reaching book. Like, it, it encompasses a lot of material, but it's all very digestible, and I think packaged together really well and i really and he's just a he's just a brilliant linguist like he he just stunningly yeah actually (laughs) it's incredible it's incredible and like he's one of those people you could pick up and read a paragraph and you this is this is coats like without a question so i i highly recommend this he's like a mark he's like a mark twain kind of figure to me he's amazing uh we'll talk about something else that i read from him this year i and i picked this one over between the world and me because i think it's more informative and more educational than that book is that book is about feeling and like what it feels like to be black in america and to be a black father in america and this book is less personal than that and and i think in all it comes with all the the good things you would want from something a little less you know individual but i i really highly recommend this one yeah I feel like I just was going to have something to say about what you just said because I really liked what you said. And I wanted to say it, but I forget. Well, if it comes back to you, just bring it up. I will. All right. Uh, What do you want to do? Do you want to do honorables? Let me me scoot through them uh, very quickly because I know we're getting long in the tooth here. And then I'll do my couple that I know you don't have so that you can we can finish on you. Okay. One is The Feather Thief, which was on your list last year. You know, I don't have to say anything more about it, just that I've read it, and now it gets my two thumbs way up approval. I fucking love The Feather Thief. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Between the World and Me, I just mentioned, uh, it's quick. If you I, if you can, I recommend listening to it, because it's narrated by Coates. It's beautiful. Beautiful thing to read, especially this year. Hillbilly Elegy, colon, A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis. I don't love this book as much as a lot of people seem to, but... It's like what you were saying. It's an intergenerational kind of family story that is in some place close to home that we don't know a lot about. So it's interesting from that perspective. Mission. This is a book my grandma got me. It's about Jimmy Stewart, who you probably know from, if you've ever seen Arsenic and Old Lace or It's a Wonderful Life, like was the, was like the king back in uh, like the late thirties and the forties in Hollywood. And he, 
kind of like uh, a lot of baseball players at the time, just like put his stuff down and served in World War II, like right in the middle of his career. And it's just a biography, like specifically focusing on his time uh, serving. And it's really interesting. If you don't have like a personal relationship with Jimmy Stewart, I don't know if I recommend it, but it's also really interesting from a just a World War II perspective. You learn a lot about the American Air Force in Europe, which I didn't know much about prior to this one. Uh, sorry, that one is called Mission, colon, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. Uh, and the last one is <laughs> McConaughey's new book, Green Lights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this book is wild, and it just, like, kind of reads, like, freeform, like, what's it called? Stream of Consciousness from McConaughey, which, like, I don't, I can't, there's no better selling point than to say it's just Matthew McConaughey's stream of consciousness. I feel like hearing that you right away know whether you want to yeah. read it or not. Yeah. Like there's nobody who's like, I wonder if I'd be interested yeah. in that. Exactly. You know, right away, I would say that there's no point in reading it unless you're going to listen to it on Audible. I don't think reading it would have very much effect compared to hearing him. So that is what I had for honorables. All right. So I think I I think my number one for the year is probably your number one. So I'll skip that one. I just mentioned three. So I'll go three, two, one. So three medical apartheid by Harriet Washington. It's interesting. You were talking about kind of the different approaches. This is a very point by point thesis paper style recounting of the many many systematic and long-running abuses of black americans by um the medical system both sort of like the the old frontier sort of doctor world to the modern sort of uh big medicine over the the hundreds of years of american history it's it's pretty singularly horrifying in kind of the annals of things i've read it's it's very akin to reading about the experiments on uh jews gypsies homosexuals uh other you know so-called deviants during world war ii by nazi doctors it's it's really unsettling and i can understand if some people would not want to read it for that reason but the author is a really terrific and organized writer she says this is what i'm gonna tell you in this chapter she tells you what she tells you she tells you again what she told you and then she moves on and it's it's just it's it's like a really good closing argument. Uh, it's just so there's nowhere to go. Like you've been nailed to the wall when you read this. Like there's no getting out of this. Facts are facts. She presents them really well. So that was a, a great read. Really difficult, but a really important read for me. Second, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young. Uh, it was one of my favorite reads of the year. Uh, it's a memoir by this writer, Damon Young, who founded VerySmartBrothers.com. And he's hilarious he's like if ta-nehisi coates had a sense of humor but was like five percent less talented so (laughs) he's he's not quite as good in sort of like pure mastery of the english language and and all that stuff that coates is but he just writes this book is just like a series of of short essays and kind of vignettes about his life and it's stuff from like people teasing each other in the back of the bus and him not being cool enough to like have something funny to say to like getting his hair cut and the importance of hair in the black community and starting his website, trying to hit on girls, play basketball. Like it's just, it's his life. Um, and it's really cool because it is extremely personal and it's really confrontational. 
Like it says, I know this makes you uncomfortable, reader who I'm guessing is white, maybe is black, if you are, sorry. Um, and he's like, but he's really unapologetic in a way that I found really admirable. Um, he's also fucking hilarious. Like he has an Instagram that I follow and he had a tweet or, or a post today that was so emblematic of what makes him great. It was basically the problem with the uh, attempted seizure of the U.S. Capitol building. The people is not that they are racist. It's that they don't have any hobbies. <laughs> and he goes, he goes on this whole thing about how like. Yeah, they're racist, whatever, like, move on. They just need something to do. Like, white people, get your people, get your house in order. Like, find some <laughs> shit to do. And I think that's just, like, very much him in that he's pointing out a very obvious social problem in, like, acknowledging it, addressing it, but doing so under the guise of something really funny. So this was a really excellent collection. Uh really liked it. And then the other one... One of the most, like, incredibly powerful things I've ever read and is a real testament to the uh, format questions we discussed earlier. The Only Plane in the Sky. Oh, yeah. And it's an oral history of uh, the September 11th attacks. And it's just this this was a book that could have been written, like pretty much innumerable ways like it could have been fictionalized it could have been the story of one person it could have been the story of the hijackers go on and on and on pretty much i'm sure all of those stories have been written but what i think it's garrett graff i want to say is the author's name but what he did is he he basically picked a time frame and a place if i'm remembering right that's how you organized it so it's like 825 new york city and then like 905 Washington DC, nine this. And so he would make a chapter be the time and the place and then have like 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 people from, you know, subway drive, you know, conductors to like at, you know, the vice president, Dick Cheney to Mariano Rivera might not have been actually in there, but he's a representative example, like big athletes. And it was just kind of people from all walks of life. And it was, this was what is happening to them at this time on the most memorable day in modern American history. And I, it was so, it was really difficult to read because it's such an emotional thing still. And there's a lot of parts of it that it's just really hard to read because there's, you know, like recording, like transcriptions of people who are about to die. And that that's horrible. It's really difficult to read. Um, I can't imagine how a person could have written this book with more like grace and better. It, it was just, it was tr like a, an experience that I won't soon forget. I couldn't recommend this book more highly. It was, if not the best, because there's one that you'll talk about that was right at the top of my list. If not the best nonfiction book I read this year, the second best, it, it really is something everyone should read. So Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thank you, Michael. That one I'm definitely putting on my list. Yeah. For this year. All right. All right, our top three. Let's get it. Let's do it. Number three is a book called Born a Crime, colon, Stories from a South African Childhood by Trevor Noah. Talk about hilarious, brilliant people. Have you read this one? I haven't, but I love Trevor Noah. So I do. I now love Trevor Noah. Um, I'm not like I don't really watch late night. 
Um, and I didn't really know who he I, was. I watch his clips because I've, I've been like following him on Instagram and he does a good job posting clips. So I've probably never sat down and watched an episode, but I keep up with his content and I think he's great. I think, well, I don't even watch that, but like just based on this book, I'm so impressed by how like well, well thought out all of his stuff is and like, mm. and how funny he is and like to have both of those <gasps> at the same time. And also yeah. like. It's the John Stewart legacy. It's like this incredible skill that so few people possess. It's amazing that he, yeah, like I, I, I can understand. I mean, I can understand why watching his show would be. I don't know why I don't watch more of it, having read this book. But the the, the third component of it is that like his life is just so fucking interesting. Like this dude grew up in the fucking ghetto in South Africa. Like he had a white dad and a black mom. Um, so like a mixed kid growing up in South Africa. And he would have been born, what, in, like, the early 80s? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, great time to be, you know, half half and half <laughs> in South Africa. Yeah. It's just really interesting. And, like, I don't have a lot of background on, like, South African history, so this book helped me kind of, like, understand that a little bit better. But, like, it's just very personal. Like, it's just stories about him, like, fucking up his first prom date and, like, him and his friend, like, stealing candy bars from the mall and this, this story made me laugh out loud. Like, people looked at me funny because I was listening to it while I was working um, out, like, outside, like, in the like in the field. And it's the story about how he, like, basically, like, he was a hustler for, like, his whole childhood. And he knew how to rip CDs and he would, like, sell stuff. And, like, <laughs> he, because he, like, had that skill, he and his friends would throw these, like, huge parties that everyone would come to because they had the best music. And then they, they they had like a dance troupe and they had this friend whose name was Hitler. And apparently like it's not at all weird in South Africa for like people to name like a lot of people have German names. Yeah. And but like they didn't understand like the the significance of that name. And like it's just it's a fucking incredible story about this dance competition that they go to with their friend Hitler, who's like the greatest dancer anyone's ever seen. <laughs> And it, it's just... It's, like, funny listening to. Like, it's, like, it, you can't make it up. And, like, there's this, like, great story about how he takes a shit um, in his house. And he doesn't realize his blind grandmother is home. And he has to lie to his grandma about pooping in the house. And she just believes him. And so she assumes it was, like, a demon. And, like, then his whole family, like, believes that their house is haunted because he took a shit. Like, and, like... Oh, my God. It's, it's so good. It's And it's just, like, stories like that, but, like, on the backdrop of, like, a really intelligent person explaining, like, apartheid Africa and... Or South Africa and, like, how it kind of shaped his youth and how it shapes him as a person now. And, and like, some of how, like, that affects his, like, his stuff on on more modern um, American stuff. But I just, and I, I, he's, for those of you who don't know, like he's got like this incredible South African accent. It's just a, such oh, a yeah. pleasure to listen to him. Did you listen to it? Yeah. I highly recommend listening to it. I think that's going to be very close to the top of my list uh, priority wise, because I, it's now been recommended by too many people. Your pitch was great. I want to just quickly recommend uh, for you because you just were saying like, you know, you want to educate yourself perhaps on South Africa a little bit. The book Country of My Skull by Antia Krog. Krog? Krog? I'm trying to remember now. Krog, I think with a G. G. Country of My Skull. 
is about the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the wake of uh, the, the end of apartheid. So I, I don't know if you know, but um, at the end of apartheid, there was a commission impaneled called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that basically determined, and I'm probably butchering some of the details, but they would forego prosecution of perpetrators of atrocities throughout apartheid in exchange for a full accounting of what they did. And so basically this body came together to like <laughs> listen to all of these people's stories and they, they wrote them down and the book is uh, largely about kind of the TRC and it's, it's a really like pretty, it's a pretty great work um, as an introduction to that topic. So, okay. That's on my list. More importantly, born a crime. And I will be reading that very soon. I loved it. I think probably listening to it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, love it. Number two. Oh, man, I love this book. So uh, the book is titled How to Hide an Empire, colon, A History of the Greater United States. Oh, look at that. Are you reading That's it? amazing. I'm reading it right now at your recommendation. I have the book. I'm looking at it right now. Yep. So at least on my copy, though, and I don't want to be too persnickety. I don't know how it looks on Goodreads. There ain't no colon here. Oh, it's just it's. it's <laughs> It's just freestanding with no uh, colon, but it needs a. It it's wants a colon. A colon. It needs. A, it needs a. It needs a colon, but it's just. It's a colonless blob floating. So the the author is Daniel Immerwar, and his yeah. colon sense aside, the rest of this book is incredible. It is. Yeah. Part part of it is it's just like so far up my alley that. Yeah. It's like it was written for me. Like I just love this stuff, but it's the the general the general pitch is that. We think of the English and Portuguese and Spanish and French empires as empires, but we don't think of America as an empire, even though it very much is, because we never had like the vast kind of continental tracts of colonies that those places did. But we have asserted our dominance over the globe in just as profound and like, and now that we've like passed post World War II, like, our exertion across the globe is parallel. Like it's, there's no competition with any other with another nation in the world. And this book kind of like goes through the history of that. And like, why as a country, we don't view ourselves as an empire. And there's a lot of really good reasons for that. The first section of the book is kind of all about like manifest destiny and basically like populating what we consider to be, he calls it like the, the map United States. Like, yeah. What, the, the logo map. He the logo map. Does. Like, like without the insets, just like the North American body of the United States. And then he goes into kind of like all of our colonial dealings in the Pacific, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba, like all of that stuff and kind of our history there, like kind of through our middle years, like 1800s, like early 1900s, which is all fascinating and like completely glossed over in like any American history I've ever like been for been subjected to like we just don't learn about it um even though it's like a pretty vital <laughs> important part of our history and then but in my opinion the last third of the book in the last section is like probably the most fascinating thing i've read this year and in a long time it's all about how we converted all of these like like as we've gone in world war ii specifically like it no longer became profitable to own like large tracts of land as colonies 
And that's why you don't see it anymore. It's not because people like came to the realization that it was wrong. It's just it's just no longer profitable with the advent of technology and radio and all this other stuff. And so what the United States has done better than any other country is converted all of its land mass, all of its like land value and converted it into empire and more non-conventional or historically non-conventional kind of avenues of power. And it's amazing to read about and how like technology and standardization and the war kind of all go hand in hand with that. It's, it's amazing. And and it's really well written. I, if it weren't this specific year <laughs> and I hadn't read another very specific book, this is one of my favorite things I've read in a long time. It's so good. Well, I'm excited to get to the portions you're talking about. I'm absolutely loving the book so far. I think just for the framing piece of things, it's really interesting right up front. Two things. So first, uh, Imrawar is clear, and I really like this, that he's not trying to tell a secret history. What he's yeah. doing is reframing things you know. And so it is cool where like you're encountering these bits of history that you've, you've likely encountered in some fashion, but framing them in a, in a new and different way. So that is really cool. I really like that. But the other thing is there's a, um, like a, a prologue or a foreword to the book yeah. that I think has a really instructive example, which is talking about the attacks on Pearl Harbor, which in itself is a misnomer. And it, it shows it actually has the marked up text of the speech that FDR delivered about the attacks uh, on December 7th, 1941 and how, Basically, initially, his his comments were going to note the, that the attacks extended to several other U.S. Uh, territories, including the Philippines um, and I think uh, Wake I- Wake Island, Guam, uh, a couple other places. And uh, long story short, they got cut out because Americans didn't really have a relationship to those places, and so it became shorthand to refer to it as Pearl Harbor. Because Americans felt more uh, sort of spiritually connected to Hawaii because it was much farther down the road towards statehood. And so it's like it's meant to be a, and it's a perfect example of how the framing of these historical events ends up overtaking the reality of them. Yeah, that's a really good example. And there's just there's a lot of stuff like that where you're kind of it's you're right. It's stuff you've heard of. But from a perspective that you've not seen it from. Yeah. I really, really liked that one. I could understand how someone would, would find it really boring, but I I loved it. Yeah. I, I think if they're finding it boring, it's it's likely because they're uh, smarter than us. But for me, I find it super interesting because it's looking at the world in a way that I, I haven't totally. So number one, and we've talked about this book on this podcast before, I think when you did your economics policies uh, podcast, I would consider this necessary reading. Like this should be taught in schools. It's also necessary reading for anybody who wants to write because this is a masterclass in uh, writing nonfiction. So the book is The Color of Law and everything you said about medical apartheid i think applies really well to this book because it's literally a thesis like oh god that opening when he defines his terms is like one of the most spectacular bits of writing i've ever read it's not interesting like from a factual point of view right but he says he says i am going to argue he's not the argument is that 
America is racist. The argument is not segregation exists. The argument is I am arguing de jure rather than de facto segregation. I am arguing it on the grounds that I, I forget which constitutional amendment. It's, I think it's the 14th. It's a mm-hmm. clause within the 14th amendment guarantees that the badges of slavery will be removed. If a government entity acts in such a way as to further the badges of slavery, it has engaged in de jure rather than de facto segregation. I shall go through and prove this. And he does. It's, it's, it's reading a proof. It's fucking, it's mathematical. And I want to reiterate. But but that's so rare. So rare. But I want to, I want to reiterate exactly what that argument is because it's, it's really important. And it's something I grasped until I read this book. Like we as a country, like kind of acknowledge that like, yes, like, ever since slavery like racism has existed and like there are there are effects and implications of that racism but it's all because like people are just racist like it's just like lingering kind of effects and it's like it's like we'll get we'll we'll figure it out yeah and even if like people behave that way and so like it's not a perfect system like the rules and like laws we have set up in theory should be fine it's just that people are dicks and his argument that he basically like he proves is that that's just not true and that like our government itself has perpetuated racist policies that affect a certain subset of our population more than another and it it has so many like broader like there's a lot of ways that the government has done that but a lot of it really really focuses on housing and development transportation like all things that are really really interesting to me like as a professional and so that's part of the reason that i love this book so much but it's impossible to read this book and put it down and think that what he says isn't true like if you read it and you're intelligently and you, and you spend time with it like there's no way to kind of like make and what i loved really about it was that he also included some like kind of not counter arguments but like questions and like objections yes, at the end are you talking about yeah it was re- I that's the sort of thing I almost never read. Yeah. Like I usually get to the end of the book and I'm so relieved to be done I don't read it. But this one I was so enthralled and so excited to see those questions. And I also feel like if I remember right he framed it as like when you're at the dinner table and somebody poses this to you like this is what you got in your back pocket. Well, that's what I love so much about this book is that it more than any book I've read this year really felt I really felt like I after reading it, had all of this ammunition by which to argue if I needed to. But also, it just, like, I felt so informed and knowledgeable about, like, like, I could could intelligently engage with a discussion that was being had by, like, all these other people that I felt like I, I couldn't before. And it really changed my perspective on this specific issue because prior to this, I would have agreed with the the argument that he's disproving that like racism is not like a a systematic or intentional thing. And I I, I, I should yeah I, I don't like I said it's required reading. Like I don't know what else to say. Like you especially this year and at this time, like you should read this book. I don't think you'll regret it. Like just be aware that it, it kind of reads like a research paper because it is like it's a thesis. But it's 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 very very important, and I forgot to mention that it's it's not called the color of law. It's called the color of law: colon a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Breathtaking. It was number one on my nonfiction list too. So 
that's that. That's the Kyle Booker Prize, colon, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a list. Yeah. What a wonderful job. Would you like to run us back through? I'll run it back. <clears throat> Number 10, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. Number nine, The Death and Life of Ada Hernandez, A Border Story. Number eight, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, Essays and Arguments. Number seven, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And nothing else. <laughs> and then nothing else. <laughs> Number six, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Number five, This Colin thing is so good. <laughs> This is still funny to me. Like, I'm sure, listener, you've kind of gotten over the joke. I still think this is funny. I'm going to keep doing it through the top five. Yeah. Uh, number five, Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. Number four, We Were Eight Years in Power, an American tragedy. Number three, Born a Crime, stories from a South African childhood. Number two, How to Hide an Empire, a history of the greater United States. And number one, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. All all of them are fantastic. You read yourself some great nonfiction this year, and you shared it well. And I have got, I'm looking right now, at least three that I'm for sure going to read soon. So, All right. You heard it, it, folks. That's a, but between this week and last week, you probably, Mike and I have given you, what? like 50 books that you could read so get to yeah, it and i think i think we've got ourselves a list of like seven books between the two of us that everyone could read and enjoy yeah and then yeah. it's a little bit of uh choose your own adventure but i think we've got a really good core of books a lot of people will really enjoy so that's that now it's time for oh, thank cheesy. yous i thank you mike for doing this marathon book session with me i sure love that i thank Kevin McLeod for our theme music, which is stanky, as you heard. I thank my sister Erin for her artwork. That's also stanky in its own way. And don't forget, if you want to see more of Erin's artwork, just go to Sant Design on Instagram. That's where it's at. And I thank you, Kyle, for reading all these wonderful books. This was delightful. Um, I also thank Caroline Labranti for... I, well, I was going to say, suggesting some of these books, but this was your list. I'm, I'm <laughs> confusing the two things we did, but she did suggest many of the books I did last week, so thanks for that. A little belated thank you. Uh, and thanks for her wonderful work on our social media. If you want to check some of that stuff out, got our Instagram, top10km, uh, the tennis belt on TEN. You can check out the Facebook group, which is top 10 Kyle and Mike. You can shoot us an email top10km at gmail.com also spelled out TDM if you want to see Caroline's personal stuff which does eventually line my pockets oh yeah yeah. you can check that out at cml.photos on instagram and finally I'm sure you're listening to us on some sort of podcast app but if you're looking for another one you can check us out on the Apple Podcast app Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean pretty much wherever podcasts can be found we're kind of famous so kyle that's all i got to say about that great work my friend i will see you soon wunderbar peace peace